You've made it to episode 416 of the 200 Churches podcast. We're on the third computer, you guys, to get this. This is, this is really a, a satanic attack on, on this, uh, on your podcast, okay? <laughs> it's not that. the first time. It's not you, the first you time. Guys, you guys are such earth-shaking movers that uh, Satan had to prevent me from being able to get on with you guys. So well, exactly I'm right. t- telling you, Rick, your, your resume is finally complete. Finally, you're a guest on the 200 Churches podcast, of which your wife was a venerable guest yeah. many years ago. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Well, you know, I, uh, I've pastored four different churches in my life, uh, a, a rural church, an inner city church, an international church, and, and, and then a suburban church for the last 43 years. But I started the first church that I planted uh, I grew up in a town of less than 500 people, a uh, little town called Redwood Valley in, uh, in uh, Northern California. And uh, I planted the first church in my dad's barn. Um, I found some old uh, theater chairs and I set it up in the barn and grew that church to a whopping 19 people. I was 16 years old and uh, I have had a heart for rural pastors, small church pastors of my life. In fact, Purpose Driven Life, Purpose Driven Church is dedicated to bivocational pastors. If you open it up and read the dedication, it's dedicated to bivocational pastors because they are the salt of the earth. These are people who are out there putting, you know, working and putting food on the table for the family all during the week and then trying to put spiritual food on the table for the flock of God on the weekend. They're my heroes. They're the heroes in heaven. Well, Rick, you've, you've already started. We haven't even welcomed <laughs> you yet. <laughs> so, uh, yes, your wife was with us, and she did, well, you know, she did a lot better than you're ever going to do today. <laughs> no, Just you know what? I, quality. We all funded our coverage when we married who we married, and uh, I am I, not ashamed to say uh, I'm the second best, best Bible teacher in our family. So, Rick, this is uh, my partner, Johnny Craig. Nice to meet you, Rick. Can you go by Richard or uh, Rick? I, I, I go by your your holy reverence. Oh, perfect. Okay. <laughs> yeah, perfect. And, and I don't you know I don't care what you call me as long as you call me to dinner. That's the main thing. Okay. There you if go. I come to dinner, <laughs> you can call me Suey, and I'll I'll show up. So thanks for joining us on the Two Hundred Churches podcast. For more than ten years, we've been providing ministry encouragement to pastors of small churches. Now, here are the two guys who started it all, lead pastors, friends, and podcast partners, Jeff and Johnny. Thank you, Angela. This is the 200 Churches Podcast. My name is Jeff Cady, my good friend and sometimes podcast partner, always good friend, Johnny Craig, joins me on this episode, and I'm so happy that he was able to do that. And you'll hear from him in just a few minutes. You've already heard from him on the intro. But this podcast was started more than 10 years ago, and we've had the same mission from day one, to provide ministry encouragement for pastors of small churches. Pastor, you need encouragement. No matter what size church you have, you need encouragement, but especially pastors of churches of around 200. And that's what we talk about. We we talk about ministering to pastors of churches around 200, give or take a eh, hundred or two, which means, you know, churches 399 and under are fair game for us. 
we want to encourage pastors. And over the last 10 years, there's been more and more encouragement and resources provided to pastors of smaller churches. There, there have been conferences and seminars for small church leaders, and it's just been fantastic, and it's just grown and grown. And we've got a lot of partners and friends that have joined us since we started in this to encourage pastors of small churches, and then there were a lot that were already at it that have just grown uh, bigger in the lives of small church pastors. So thank you for joining us today. Today we get to talk with Rick Warren, Uh, We enjoyed a great conversation with him. Ironically, the conversation was the day before his church, Saddleback Church, his former church, but it's still his church because he attends there. Uh, It's just got, it got disfellowshipped, so to speak, from the Southern Baptist Convention. And it's, it's sad. And, but I'm not going to let it throw a pall or a shadow over this episode which comes out the day after that happened. Uh, Rick and Johnny and I were able to talk the day before it happened. When we talked, he talks about it, he reacts to it, and yet I didn't realize it was going to be the very next day. I didn't know it was happening so quickly. But Rick it gives us just some great coaching and teaching. He just just gives great encouragement in this episode. I'm so glad that you get to listen to it. If this is your first time listening to the 200 Churches podcast, there are 415 other episodes with all kinds of scholars, authors, pastors, church planners, church leaders, thought leaders from all over the world, and you, you've you just got a wealth of encouragement and a wealth of episodes to draw from. So go to 200churches.com, click on podcasts, you can go to podcast series, and you could just, there's just a lot of encouragement there for you. With that, Johnny and I got to talk with Pastor Rick Warren, the founding pastor of Saddleback Church in Lake Forest, California, with campuses all across Southern California and even around the world. Here's our conversation with Rick Warren. Rick Warren, welcome to the 200 Churches podcast. Your resume is now complete. <laughs> you know what? I, I feel like I could die and go to heaven now, Jeff. Okay. I just like, uh, you know, I, you've That's been to so needed. many of my conferences. It's only fair enough that I could come <laughs> on your guys's podcast. Thank you for finally getting around me. I was wondering if you ever going to ask. I really well, just kept feeling, come on, why haven't these guys asked me to this point? I uh, know. Why, why, will they, why am I, am I chopped liver or something? <laughs> well, truth be told, truth be told, six years ago, we were headed to episode 200. And it was, yeah. Johnny called it our golden episode of the yeah. 200 Churches yeah. podcast. And yeah. we tried to get you and your chief of staff informed us that you were otherwise occupied. So we had to settle. We told your wife this, Johnny, tell them who we had to settle for. It was unfortunate. We did. We had to go to our, our second list, the B sides and we got NT right. So it was, yeah. Oh my goodness. Tom Wright, Rick Warren. Who, that's, mm, that's a hard one. That's a real hard one right there, guys. Okay. Tom Wright, Rick Warren. Okay. Exactly. Yeah, right. Exactly. So we're, we're now 10 years into it, Rick. We started in January of 2013 and uh, it's fitting that we should be uh, getting to you about this time. So thanks well, for joining us. Well, you know, us. I, I appreciate 
No, you only had to wait until I left Saddleback Church to do this. But uh, I'm 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 so glad. I, I, you know, like I said, I finally I finally made the cut. I know that you're you're looking for attention right now. You're hard up for attention, so <laughs> we're going to give it to you. So I, I, uh, we we want to talk about finishing the task. We want to talk about that. I I have three questions, and Johnny has just one question before we get to finishing sure. the task. So here's my question: What what is the most important thing you you've just transitioned away from your senior leadership? What's the most important thing that you've done, and what's the most important thing that Andy has done to help your people make a successful transition? It's only going to work unless the the former pastor 110 percent believes in the next guy and gives him space. I told Andy, I said, Andy, I literally handed him a baton on my last Sunday. And it was kind of a, a fun, kind of number of fun things. In my last uh, month, we did a lot of last baptism, uh, last membership class, you know, th- stuff like that that I had taught for 43 years. Well, Andy was a part of all those last ones. He he came and was a part of, he sat on the front row as I taught my last membership class, which by the way, was the biggest one we've ever had in history. Over 2000 people came. They wanted to get under the, under the thing, but he sat on the front row, signed the covenant, Classic. you know, and it was a big deal. And so then I was going to do my last baptism, you know, guys in 43 years, I've baptized 57,000 new believers. Oh my gosh. In the last baptism, I called Andy and I said, Andy, I'm going to be baptizing the last, I don't know, it was several hundred people. Um, I want you to stand outside of the pool. You hug everybody and you get a picture with them as they're getting out. So everybody in that last baptism, not only got a picture with the, the former pastor, the founding pastor, they got a picture with the new guy coming in. And then on the last three baptisms, I had Andy get in the water with me and baptize. My last three baptisms were his first three. Hmm. And so it's that kind of Hmm. loving handing the baton off. And then uh, I told him, I said, Andy, I'm going to be out of here for at least three or four months. I want you to get settled I don't have any plans of of leaving the church, but I said, I'm going to be the old guy with the cane waving and, you know, okay, and I'll be sitting on the front row, uh, (laughs) you know, and eventually, not right now, waving the cane and saying, we we love our pastor. But the main thing is be a believer and, and trust them to make their own decision. I said, so I said, I'm not going to be at church for at least three months. And I want you to get your 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 roots settled. And so always affirming them, uh, believing him. It, it, we've had a mutual where he honors me and I honor him. And, uh, and so everybody knows he's my choice as well as the elder's choice. And uh, I'm not going to undercut him. Um, e- even if there were something I disagreed with, and I have to say I haven't disagreed with anybody, even if there were, I wouldn't say anything about it. Uh, I, I would if people come to me and say, well, Pastor Rick, what about this? I'm going to go, go, go talk to your pastor. Go, go talk to your pastor. He's he's the guy. He's my pastor. And I will often say that. Uh, I say, this is my pastor. And I said, for the first time in my life, I get to have a pastor. Is there something that he's done that has been really helpful for the people? 
other than like generally what you've just said, has he done something and you've been like, oh, I didn't maybe didn't think of that. Well, and look, the, look at this. the reason that that we chose Andy, I and, and our elders, is he had the same heart for winning lost people to Christ. He really cares about people who don't know Jesus, who are far from God. And, and of course, that's been the lifeblood of Saddleback Church is that it, it's a, we are the church that exists for the people who aren't here. And, and the problem, guys, uh, with our with our churches is the longer we are, the, the older a church becomes, the more self-centered it tends to become. What, what happens is what starts off as service ends up becoming serve us. And it suddenly shifts from meet my needs, meet my expectations, do what I need, Stuff like that. And the church stops existing. The church is the only organization ever created that exists for the benefit of the non-members. It, it is in giving itself away. And so that mentality, Andy came in, picked up the ball, and, and just did that. He's right now leading our church through a campaign called the One Life that he just put together. And it's basically, are you going to find the one life that you'll share Christ with and will go into heaven with you someday? So yeah. it's, it's a personal Good. witnessing, personal sharing campaign. Johnny, you got a question. I do have a question. I'm going to be careful to phrase it in the best possible way. <laughs> um, you're, you've come to the end of your tenure as um, yeah. as a pastor. Uh, you you know your church is notably large, um, but a lot of uh, your contemporaries, a lot of other large church pastors, have not made it to the end. Uh, of their term in what you might think of as a natural or positive or healthy kind of a way. I don't want to get into well. They didn't finish well, Johnny. Right. Well, I'm not trying to name any names or anything like that, but I I would just ask you, what do you think or what do you know that you've done or that the church has done or, or what has it been? What do you attribute getting to the finish line? Well, to that, that's, we could spend the rest of the, time together on that because that's yeah. probably the most important <laughs> question how do i make it to the finish line how do i finish well and the first thing i would say is this satan doesn't have any new ideas he's been using the same three basic temptations since adam and eve the, the bible calls them the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes and the pride of life the lust of the flesh is our passions the lust of the eyes is possessions i see it and i want it it's greed, and the pride of life is is position. I I don't want just to be loved. I I want to be envied. I I want to be worshipped. I, I want people to think I'm better than everybody else. All three of those. We could go from Abraham, David, Moses, Jesus. Three temptations that we'll learn. They have the exact three temptations. The temptation to feel. I want to feel good. The temptation to have. I. I want to have more, and the temptation to to be, I want to be more than I really am. Hmm. These three things, passion, possession, position, or sex, salary, status. You know, by the way, when my kids were little, every single advertisement ever made appeals to one of those three. Every hmm. single one of them, on television, radio, whatever. And so I would pay my kids, and I realized this is is materialism, but I would pay them a nickel if they could tell me, dad, that's lust of the flesh, mm-hmm. you know, or that's, that's lust of the eyes. or that's the pride of life. That's passion. You know, you like the, 
uh, a shampoo commercial says, oh, it feels so good. Like I'm having an ecstatic experience because I'm shampooing my hair. <laughs> um, or if I have this car or dress, then I'm envied, you know, uh, or I'm going to have more than everybody else. So knowing that, knowing those three, and we could go into a lot of detail on that. The sure. antidote is this, and I really want everybody to listen closely to it, because if there's anything I could say, here's how you finish well. If you want the blessing of God on your life for your entire ministry, if you want the power of God in your life for your ministry, if you want the anointing of God on your life, you must do two things. First, you must care about what God cares about most. And what God cares about most is he wants his lost children found. The cross shows it. This is how much I love the world. With arms outstretched, I love the world so much, I'd rather die than live without it. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, I'd love, I love you to death. I'd rather die than live without you. I love you so much it hurts. But the second thing is you must build your life on integrity, humility, and generosity. Integrity, humility, and generosity are the antidotes to the three great temptations of leadership. Mm. Okay, and kind of let me explain real quickly on this. And I, I, this is worth taking time over, guys. It's really worth taking time over because everybody stumbles in one of these three. Integrity doesn't mean just honesty. It means far more than that. Integrity comes from the word integer, which means a unit of one, an integer, integer, which is um, integrity is not a piece of the pie. It's the whole filling in the pie. It actually means wholeness, not just honesty. Hmm. And what it means is what you see is what you get. You know, you don't you don't wear a mask in, in Greek theater back in uh, Euripides and Socrates and played on all those dudes. Uh, one player would have many roles. He'd come out, wear a mask, play one role, go back, change it, come back, wear a mask, play a second role, go back, change it, come back. And the person who changed those masks was called in Greek a hypocritos, which we get the word hypocrite from. And, and, and what is a hypocrite? You, you act different ways with different groups of people. Integrity doesn't mean you're perfect, because if it did, none of us would ever have integrity. Hmm. I, I, I lost being perfect a long time ago. What it means is my heart is in the right direction and that even when I stumble, I own up to it. And, and it means what you see is what you get. I'm not playing you know, favorites. I'm not pretending. I'm not wearing a mask. And a lot of pastors fall. And, and if we were to go down the list, I, I, I've kept the list for almost 40 years of what I call my warnings file. Hmm. And what it is, is I started, I started preaching when I was 16, very young. And every time I find a story of a guy who flamed out morally or financially, or he just burned out and, and died, lost his integrity, humility, generosity, I would cut out that article and throw it in a file. And for a long time, I just had a file folder. And about every six months, I'd go through that folder just to put the fear of God in me hmm. and go, given the right situation, I am capable of anything. Yeah. Yep. Okay. The Bible says the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. What that means is I lie to myself more than I lie to anybody else. 
And a lot of times as a pastor, we tell our things, tell ourselves things are better than they really are. And sometimes we tell ourselves they're worse than they really are. I'm not a good judge of me. Mm. Okay. I can't see the forest, which is why I need Nathan's in my life who love me enough to go, Rick, you're off base right now. You're out of whack. You're acting very prideful right now, or you're acting very, whatever, you know. Uh, and, and you, you know, if, if somebody came to me and, uh, on like, and said, you know, Rick, the way you talked to that woman, it didn't look right. Now, how I respond to that reveals the direction of my heart. Hmm. If I say, oh, that's no big deal, it's already a big deal. Yeah. If I say it's not a big deal, it's, it is a big deal. Because in my heart, I would go, I'm horrified that even the appearance of something impropriety would be seen. And I would want to run the other way because it's not how close to the fire can I get and not get burned. It's how far away from the fire can I stay. And I built parameters in my life morally that people would have to make up stuff about me because I just don't even allow that temptation. I I have never in in 50 over 50 years of ministry been in a room with a woman who's not my wife with the door closed ever, except in the case of a nurse in a doctor's office. Okay. That's the only time. And so uh, nobody can accuse me. I've always traveled with somebody else. I learned this from my mentor, Billy Graham. And and it wasn't my idea. He he just taught it to me as a young man who picked me up as at 18 and began to mentor me. But integrity, a lot of pastors fall for what's called, I call it the, the Titanic myth. The Titanic was supposed to be unsinkable. And it was supposed to be unsinkable because it was the first ship where they compartmentalized the hull. In a submarine, you can batten down the hatch if you take on water in a certain area. And you you bet. And in a in a compartmentalized hull, it used to be if a ship hit an iceberg, it knocked the hole in the boat, the whole hull fills up and it sinks. The Titanic was supposed to be unsinkable because it supposedly you can hit get hit an iceberg, take on a certain amount of water, but it won't sink the whole ship. Theoretically, I get that. True. But the truth is a hole in the boat is a hole in the boat is a hole in the boat. <laughs> and, and, and and if you and I Johnny are sitting out fishing in a rowboat and I start drilling a hole at my end of the boat and you go, Rick, what are you doing? You're going to take us down. I go, oh no, it's just my life. It's not going to hurt anybody else. A sin may be personal, but it's never private. Mm. What I mean by that is even if other people never know about it, you're going to, you're going to hurt them. Right. Even if they don't know about it. For instance, if I don't have a quiet time every day, within a couple of days, if I miss it for a few days, I notice. I notice my attitude. If I miss a quiet time for a week, my wife notices. If I missed quiet time for several weeks, the church would notice. Hmm. But I can't sin and not hurt other people. And so integrity means I will be the same with it. It doesn't mean I'm perfect. It just means I'm not going to pretend. I'm going to be the real deal. What you see is what you get. And that means flaws and all. Yeah. Okay. So integrity is the antidote to the lust of the flesh. 
And what happens on that is, is when pastors get tired, and the reason we every pastor gets tired, you can have 75, 50 people in your church. It's tiring to shepherd. Okay, it's tiring to shepherd. I, if I've got 75 people under my care, which by the way, some pastors of small churches don't understand. Well, it's like this. On, on an airplane, when they when the pilot gets on board, he is handed a list of the people who are on that plane. And, and they'll say, Captain, today there are 15 souls on this plane. Or there are 50 souls. And they still use the word soul, 50 souls. Or there are 300 souls on this plane. Hmm. Is the pilot of a plane with seven people on it any less responsible than the guy with 100 on it? No. No, he is just as accountable and just as responsible and has a stewardship to get those souls to safety. So it has nothing to do with size, has zero to do with size. It has to do with stewardship. Their souls entrusted to my care, whether I've got 10 or 100. Right. Okay, it doesn't matter. 10 or 100 is still it's the souls that Jesus died for. So the second problem is uh, the lust of the eyes. And the, that is, when I see it, I want it. I see it and I want it. And, you know, like at Christmas time, I, I get all these Christmas catalogs, and all of a sudden I see things I never knew I needed. <laughs> but because I see them, now I want them. And so it comes some through the eyes. Then the, the pride of life is, is of course, ego. Now, let, let's just take, uh, and I'll explain this, but in in Adam and Eve, first it says, the fruit was pleasing to the eye. I see it and I want it. And then it said, it's good to the taste. That's lust of flesh. And then it says, if you eat it, you'll be as gods. Pride of life. Pride of life. Same three temptations for Jesus. Jesus, turn these stones to bread. Now, Jesus had fasted for 40 days. What's wrong with Jesus being hungry? Nothing. Then what's the, what's the temptation here? What's the sin here? God gave Jesus the ability to turn stones to bread, but not for his own benefit, to feed other people, not himself. Yeah. And the first temptation in ministry is to take the gifts God used you and use them on yourself, to feed yourself. That's the first fundamental temptation. You know, I've never been tempted to turn stones to bread. Why? God never gave me that gift. And here's the thing. We often think that we're tempted in our weakness. We are, but you're tempted more in your strengths. Satan doesn't care about your strengths as long as you use them for your selfish purposes. And so you may be really good at putting together a sermon. And at the end, you go, wow, I wowed him. What were you doing? You were impressing them. Okay, you're impressed. And all of a sudden, right thing, wrong motivation. It was to show, show off or whatever. But anyway, the, the temptation is to feed yourself and use your talents to feed yourself. Then it says uh, Jesus was taken up. After that, they, Jesus took up, up on the hill. And he said, uh, all these things will I give you. It's the riches of the world. If you just fall down and worship me, that's the second thing, lust of the eyes, greed. The first is sensuality. The second is greed. And all these things I will give you, if you just compromise. And that's the second temptation. Pastors say, you know what? I know I need to point out this sin in our midst, uh, but that guy loans me his condo for vacation. So I'm not really going to say anything. I'm going to back off because that guy 
has a fishing spot that I like to go to, or that guy ha- can can benefit me. And what I do is I sell my soul for you know for a thing. So the antidote to the lust of the eyes is generosity. Hmm. And one of the reasons I'm finishing well is Kay and I made the decision to be more generous every year. When we got married 47 years ago, of course, we tithed 10% of our income, but we decided that every year we would increase our tithe, even if it was just a quarter of a percent, so that every year we were giving more than the year before. And so at the end of the first year of marriage, we raised our tithe a percent to 11%. At the end of our second year of marriage, we raised our tithe to 12%. At the end of our third year of marriage, we raised it 3%. And and throughout our life, we've always given more. Now, we weren't trying to impress anybody because we didn't tell anybody about this for nearly 30 years. But we were we each year we were giving more and more. And on the years that the cupboard was bare and resources were tight, and and maybe I was between churches or or seminary students, well, we would increase it maybe just a half of a percent. And if I had a year where I got a raise or I wrote a book, or something like that, well, we'd raise it 3 or 4% sometimes. And so when I got to the year 2002, that we'd been married, well, we had been at Saddleback 22 years, been married about five years longer than that. And I wrote this book, Purpose Driven Life, and it, it became the best-selling book in history. It's still selling over a million copies a year. Uh, it's over, sold over 50 million copies. It's the num- It's the most translated book in history, except for the Bible. It's in Guinness Book of Records as the most translated book, except for the Bible. It's in over 200 languages. That made me incredibly wealthy instantly. Hmm. And honestly, guys, it scared me to death. It really it, it put the fear of God in me because I thought, I know what happens when people get rich. Yeah, I know what happens when people have money. And it, it goes weird does weird things to their head. And so we made a number of decisions that decided that, well, first place, we're just going to give it away. And so we made five decisions in 2002. I said, one, we're not going to change our lifestyle one bit. I still live in the same house I lived in before I wrote the book. For the next 20 years, I drove a 20-year-old Ford truck. (laughs) I could have gone out and bought an I island. read on the internet that you I, added I read on the internet that you had put in a 40,000 foot edition on it. That is not true. That is not true. Uh, that is a lie from the pit of hell. Uh, and uh okay. so we I drove the same truck several hundred thousand miles. I could have gone out and bought an island. And and had people serve me little glasses of iced tea with umbrellas in them the rest of our life. But that's not the purpose of life. And when you write a book that the first four words are, it's not about you, then you know the money's not for you. We said, we're not going to change our lifestyle. Second thing, I stopped taking a salary from Saddleback. Every pastor in my position that I, who had been in my position would have done the same thing. I really believe that. People say, well, pastors are in it for the money. That's nonsense. There, there may be somebody out there, but there's a whole lot easier ways to make money than be a pastor. Come on. Okay. No pastor's really in it for money. That's just, that's ridiculous. Um, so we stopped taking salary. Um, third, I added up all the church had paid me in the first 22 years, and I gave it all back. 
because I didn't want anybody saying, well, Rick does this for income. So I've now, I now served Saddleback Church for free for 43 years. And as I've traveled around the world training pastors, I pay my own way. I pay my team's own way. I haven't taken an honorarium in 30 years. This is one of these are boundaries I put in my life. I put in sexual boundaries and I put in material boundaries hmm. to keep me. Why? I don't trust my heart. Okay. I don't trust my heart. So I need boundaries. Uh, we started three foundations and then we became reverse tithers. And now for since 2002, that's 21 years ago, Kay and I have been reverse tithers ever since. We, we give away 91%. We live on nine. And uh, people say, well, you know, if I wrote a million seller, I'd do that too. No, you wouldn't. Why? Because you're not doing it now. Okay. <laughs> I had a 30-year track record of generosity of 30% of my income, 40% of my income, 50% of my, I'm giving back to the Lord. I go, yeah, no, you're not doing it right now. I, people ask me, why do you think God chose you to write the most impressive, the best-selling book in history? He knew what I'd do with the money. Hmm. He knew I wouldn't spend it on myself. And I had a 30-year track record of doing that, that I would not spend it on myself. Yeah. The hardest part, though, though, guys, is the third one, the pride of life. Okay? Sex is one thing, money is another thing. But the third is position and pride. And all of a sudden after PDL, I'm on the cover of every magazine, hmm. like twice on time, cover of time, twice on the cover of Newsweek, People Magazine, on and on and on. I'm going, this scared me because I, I, I know what it does. And we have to, the, the antidote to the lust of the flesh is integrity. The antidote to the lust of the eyes is generosity. And the antidote to the pride of life is humility. Now, humility is probably the most misunderstood character quality. Humility is not putting yourself down. I'm no good. I'm nothing. I'm just junk. I'm dirt. No, you're not dirt. You're not junk. Jesus didn't die for junk. Hmm. You're infinitely valuable and you're infinitely flawed. Both of those are true. But when people say, well, I'm just nothing, I'm no good, I want to give this song to the Lord, but it's not very good, they're actually, that's false humility. It's saying, please, please approve of me. Please compliment me. It's, it's begging for compliments. Humility is not denying your strengths. Humility is being honest about your weaknesses. Hmm. We're both a bundle of both. Johnny has great strengths. Johnny has great weaknesses. Yeah. Jeff has great strengths. Jeff has great weaknesses. Rick has great strengths. Rick has great weaknesses. We're all a bundle of both. And humility is just being honest. Now, the key is not thinking less of yourself. And because a lot of people fall for this trap of pride. The key is not thinking less of yourself. It's just not thinking of yourself at all. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. How do you become a truly humble person? Real simple. Focus on other people so that you're not even thinking about you. And a pastor, any pastor who's listening, can train himself or herself to do this, yeah. to think of others instead of themselves. For instance, when I first started in ministry, I, I will say I could walk into a room of 50 people, and my first reaction would be, I wonder how I look. 
is my hair okay? You know, do I look okay? And I would be nervous about me. How do I look in this situation, particularly with a bunch of strangers? And I learned over time to flip that on its head. And now it is second nature to me. When I walk into a room, I'm not thinking, how do I look? I'm thinking, who needs my help? Who needs a word of encouragement in this room? My youngest son, uh, who died 10 years ago by suicide, he has mental illness his entire life, had the antenna to see people in pain because he was in pain. Hmm. And he could walk in a room, look around. He'd know instantly who was in the most pain. He'd go spend the rest of the evening just talking to that person, trying to encourage him, trying to help him. And so you, you look around and you say, who needs my help? When you're so busy helping others, you're not thinking of yourself. Yeah, That's real humility. And so that's a long, 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 long answer of how do you make the finish line? You have to build humility, integrity, and generosity into your life because they are the only antidotes to the three traps that Satan has used very effectively and still does in, in folks in the ministry. Were you ever at a point, Rick, where you were kind of a little out too far over your skis and you just said to yourself, oh, I got to I gotta pull back. I got to pull back here. It's not just once. It happens quite frequently. And, and, and because what happens is, particularly on the third one, like notoriety, you'll get pushed into areas you don't want to go. For instance, because of the book, all of a sudden, I start getting calls from very well-known people like Bill Gates and Jack Welch and the president of the United States. And I'm getting asked to speak in front of Congress and the United Nations and Davos World Economic Forum. And these are pretty heady areas. If God calls you to do something that stretches your pride like that, what you need to do is come home and change diapers and mow the lawn (laughs) and do the dishes and do your own laundry and don't ask anybody else. You need to do this. That's real world. What I worry about more than pastors is pastors who get on the speaking circuit. Mm. Because when they're on the speaking circuit, it's an unrealistic world. They put you in a nice hotel. You've got a nice meal. You're treated like a king. You're not a king. I'm not a king. I'm just a guy and I'm just a pastor. And in If I have a little bit of that notoriety of like, well, I'm going to go speak at this pastor's conference, that's that's a you should just be aware that's one of the quickest ways for Satan to take you down. Hmm. Okay. Uh, In fact, I think the other two often start with the pride issue because people start thinking, I can handle this. No, you can't. I'll say it again. Given the right situation, you're capable of anything. So so you have to pull yourself back and Jeff, that means pulling yourself back sometimes physically, I do less. Sometimes it means pulling yourself back um, emotionally. I'm not going to get so caught up. The biggest problem right now for pastors, social media. Because what happens is every time you get a like, it's a dopamine hit in your brain. And that is addicting. And you can spend so much time chasing likes. You're not preparing your sermon. You're not visiting people in the hospital. You're not doing the weddings and the funerals. You're, you're not counseling the people who need that. I still do that kind of stuff. I had two funerals this week. People say, well, are you kidding me? No, I'm a pastor. That means I do funerals. I've got mm-hmm. two 
this week. And, and, I, and I do counseling calls. You know, it, it, I had one just last night. A very, very famous person just went into hospice. And I called to send my greetings and prayers. And, and I ended up spending 30 minutes doing grief counseling. You just have to be ready for those situations uh, of, uh, of handling that. You don't want to get ahead of the Lord. You don't want to get behind the Lord. You want to just be, the Lord is my pacemaker. Johnny, do you have anything? I better, I, my questions open up a can of worms, so I better not. I know. My biggest question, Rick, was this, uh, maybe I need to just be clear that it's tongue-in-cheek, but who's a bigger heretic, you or Beth Moore? Because the internet cannot seem to decide, and I feel like <laughs> I just, we need to know, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> great, great question. Let me just say this. Let, let me just say this. Millennial, Rick. He's a millennial. Just, you know. One of the... If you don't want to be criticized, get out of the ministry. <laughs> amen, amen. Okay, really? Okay. So you don't have to be at the level of notoriety I am to be beaten up by criticism. Okay. You can be a, a, a pastor of a church, a good, a normal church in a normal town, and you'll be beat up with criticism. Yeah. Uh, just the time you get crowd A pleased, crowd B gets ticked off. And then when you get crowd B ticked off, crowd A gets one minute you're the hero, the next minute you're the zero. So what I tell pastors is never invest a single second of your life in trying to be famous or well-known. Yeah. Because it, it, it's it's a total sham. One minute you're the hero, next minute you're the zero. Like I said, I, I've been on the cover of Time Magazine two times. The next week, who remembered? Nobody except my mom. Okay, really? <laughs> And nobody even cared. Okay. So why was it such a big deal to, you know, to get, it's like, who was the winner of the Super Bowl last year? I can't remember, you know? And, and so fame is fleeting. It's not worth that at all. But I will tell you this. I have had my abnormal share of criticism and I asked the Lord why. And he said, because I want to use you. One of these days, I'm going to write a book on everything I learned about criticism and how to deal with it. And I think it might be my most helpful book. Uh, and it, it, it's just little one liner each page, because as pastors, we, we're people pleasers. We want to be approved. We, we want to be loved because we want to love. And if you live for the approval of others, you will die by their rejection. Hmm. It'll devastate you. You just can't do it. So here's what you have to do. If a criticism is true, listen and learn from it. If a criticism is false, ignore it and forget it. And ultimately, remember, only God is the judge of your life. I was telling somebody the other day that three times in my 50 years of ministry, I have attempted a project that involved every nation. The first one was the peace plan, going to every nation, planting a church in every nation. We did that in 197 nations. Second was when I wrote Purpose Driven Life. took me seven months, 12 hours a day to write it. That book went to every nation. And now I'm leading FTT, Finishing the Task, which is a plan to get the gospel to every nation uh, by the 2033, the 2000th anniversary of the church. In every one of those times, the opposition has gone up. And I have felt a personal attack, and I have felt an outside attack. And so, for instance, when I launched the peace plan, 
for our church to be the first church in history to go to every nation. The week after I launched it, Kay got cancer. And the whole next year, I'm holding a pan while she's throwing up from chemo and radiation going, is my wife going to live? And I wasn't thinking, oh, what a great author I am. I'm thinking, is my wife going to live? Yeah. And that was the internal competition, uh, internal work. Uh, externally, there was this guy, he's now in heaven, God bless him, who got on TV and started saying, Rick Warren's trying to create a new religion of combining Islam and Christianity called Chrislam. I'm going, what? I never even heard of the term. Okay, I never even heard of it. But he, and that thing, that's still out there. It's the lie that won't die. And people will still say, there's a couple that left my church because of that. No way. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. All I mentioned, I just mentioned that you guys had a church of 20,000, but you only had a seating capacity of 3,500. Yeah. Right. And I, and I was just talking about like our space and stuff. Making good use. Afterwards she, right. And afterwards she came to me because I said the name Rick Warren and she's like, uh, are you a follower of Rick Warren? Follower of Rick Warren. <laughs> and I had to become, yeah. I had to become, uh, what's his name? The Senator from Arizona yeah, yeah. that ran for president. The McCain? little guy, what's his name? John McCain. Uh, yeah. I'm McCain. I became like a, uh, he's an Arab. Right, one right. of those things, you know, and I had to say, no, no, Rick's no, Rick's a pastor. Just like yeah. I am. He's just a pastor of a church. He yeah. loves Jesus. And, and they never came yeah. back. They oh left my. that night. And they never came back. So thanks, Rick. Well, you thanks know, that's, that kind of stuff happens. And I, <laughs> I said that it's a lie that won't die. It's still out there that, that I'm trying to start some kind of, uh, you know, people say, do you believe that, uh, your God is the same God as Allah? Oh, I don't believe that. My God is Jesus Christ. Hmm. Muslims don't believe Jesus Christ is God. My God is Jesus Christ. So we do not worship the same God. But anyway, so there was an internal and external. Then the next thing is when I was writing Purpose Driven Life, and I would get up at 5 a.m. in the morning, and I'd go to a little book place I was writing, and I would write for 12 hours a day, literally sit at a table 12 hours a day, come home at night, eat dinner, play with the kids, go to bed by 8, and lived a very, very disciplined life. For over seven months, I never preached except Christmas and Easter, and I never had a staff meeting. I, it literally was like a sabbatical. During that time while I was writing, now, I didn't know it was going to have impact, but I did know it was orda- uh, uh, anointed because many times I'd be sobbing in tears as I was writing, going, I'm not this good. This is, I need this myself. I, I need mm. this. I, I'm, not, I'm not smart enough to write it like this. And so I, I knew it was... God was going to use that. I just didn't know it was going to be a bestseller. Two things happened. One, when I started writing that book, my youngest son who struggled with mental illness, illness his entire life started becoming suicidal. Hmm. And I went with all kinds of ups and downs emotionally while I was writing that book. It was like an attack right in my own family. And then externally, the IRS decided that they were going to eliminate the ministerial housing allowance for every pastor, and they decided to use me as a test case. Well, they picked the wrong guy. I wasn't (laughs) even taking a housing allowance, but I said, I'm going to defend pastors. So while I'm writing the book, I go to court twice in two battles against the IRS. And in the first court case, I win two judges to one on my behalf. 
Second, they went to a higher court, and I won 16 judges to nothing in my favor. Then I had to go to Congress and get the Warren bill passed, which permanently instated the ministerial housing allowance for every pastor. And it was unanimously passed in the Senate and unanimously passed in the House in one day, broke all records. President Bush signed the bill and it became law. That was going on while I'm writing a book. And Johnny and I thank you, Rick. <laughs> thank you. I, I should be a hero for pastors on that one. Okay. Because it cost me about a half million dollars in all of those uh, court cases and oh my stuff. God. But it's while I'm trying to do something significant. And then this third one that came up is when I became uh, a leader of finishing the task, which is something Billy Graham had asked me to take on 22 years ago. And I said, I can't do it right then. I'm pastor in a church. But I took this on. And right after that, two things happened. Number one, I got a pretty painful, and I still have it right now, called PMR. It's polymyalgic rheumatica, which leaves your body excruciatingly pain. Poly means it's in both sides, both legs, both hands, both arms. Myalgic means it's pain in the muscles. And rheumatica means it's a rheumatoid disease. And it lasts tends, tends to last three to five years. Excruciatingly painful. I can't dress myself right now. Ugh. I can't open uh, in the morning. I can't open a sugar packet. Uh, it's so much pain. And I'm going, okay, I'm trying to do something significant. And and then I'm going to go through this pain. And then on the outside, Al Mohler decides he's going to kick us out of the Southern Baptist Convention because I dared to name three of my women staff pastors. And I'm going, really, do we need this? Is, is that what it's all about? Come on. Really? Just need to is stop that being unbiblical. <laughs> is that the important issue? But is it worth fighting over? Uh, you know, <laughs> there's so many other things to fight. Okay. And uh, I will, I would repudiate, I would say this. Two verses changed my mind about women, really two verses. One of them was the Great Commission. As I spent during COVID, I read over 200 books on the Great Commission during COVID. The Great Commission was given to everybody. Yeah, I don't believe it was given to just men. I believe it was given to everybody. I don't believe it was given to just ordained people. I believe Great Commission is everybody's responsibility. Well, there are four verbs. Go make disciples, baptize, and teach. Well, you can't split that and say, well, maybe women should go and make disciples, but they're not supposed to baptize or teach. Hmm. That's eisegesis. You can't split it. Either you believe it's all for everybody or not. Either all Christians, men and women, are to go. Men and women are to make disciples. Men and women are to baptize. Men and women are to teach. It's in the Great Commission. And the other verse that changed my mind was Acts 2, 17 and 18, which is what we call the charter of the church. And on Acts chapter 2, which is Peter's sermon at Pentecost, we know that there were women at Pentecost in the upper room. We know that there are women who preached to men at Pentecost. How do we know that? Because Peter felt called to explain it. And he says, guys, what you're seeing here, this is that Joel was talking about. And Joel says, in the last days, I will have my sons and my daughters will preach. Sons and daughters will preach. I will, young men will dream dreams and old men will have visions. Old men will dream dreams on all flesh. 
both men and women, I will pour out my spirit and they will prophesy. So sons and daughters, young and old, men and women, who gets left out? Nobody. The church at its birth was the church at its best. And the reason the church grew the fastest in the first 350 years is we didn't limit the ministry to just half the population. Everybody preached, go, made disciples, baptized, and 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 teach. You know why Saddleback baptized 57,000 believers? Because if you win them to Christ, you get to baptize them. So those two verses changed my mind. Those two verses changed my mind completely. I, I couldn't deny what Scripture said. So what I'm hearing, I'm just I just want to be clear. That's radical, more. I realize, but I'm just saying. I'm Presbyterian, even, Rick. You're not going to hurt my feelings. I, if we don't have a woman preaching up here, I feel like we're doing it wrong. But I, what I'm hearing is between Beth Moore and Rick Warren, the heretic is Al Mohler. That's what I just want to put a pay. I just want to cherry on it that that's where we landed. Uh, you didn't say it. You didn't say it. But I, I'll say we're not, it. I'm not. No way. No way. <laughs> so is Saddleback currently, are you? Not in the Southern Baptist Convention For anymore? the third year, we're going to come before the credentials board of the Southern Baptist Convention. And in May, I mean, in June, uh, if Al has his way, we will be kicked out. And you know what? If it was just us, I, I probably wouldn't say anything. I'd say, oh, we're just fine. We don't need the SBC right. for our influence or for the love that we have with literally tens of thousands of pastors that I've shared and loved for 40 years. But I, I received over 4,000 letters from churches in support of what we were doing. And over 300 of them were pastors that were afraid, will we get kicked out if they find out we have women pastors on our staff? And and I'm going, okay, if, if, if you'll promise that we're the only ones kicked out, we'll go quietly. But if this is the beginning of an inquisition, I feel duty bound to protect brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah. 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 I like that. Yeah. Interesting. Rick, do you have time for one more question? You know what? For you guys, I've got all the time in the world. <laughs> well, I wish I did. <laughs> if Johnny will give me his Patagonia hat, I there will. You go. Yeah. Uh, I'm, my wife got me this. <laughs> it's a good hat. It's good so, looking, buddy. You, you look. You know, you look drop dead sexy. What can I say? I appreciate okay? that. I, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're you it's are all I'm ever going to hear. <laughs> you're a hunk of burning love. <laughs> oh, so uh, now I don't know which question to ask because I got a couple here. All but, right. So, so you, I heard you say long time ago that you felt like you had the gift of encouragement. So I want you to talk to us about the role of encouragement in the life and ministry of a pastor, and both the need for it, but also the power of giving it to others. Because more and more and more, I'm finding it's free to give away. It doesn't cost anything. And it is so powerful. And just a couple of days ago, I was with somebody and I thought, can they not scrape together one teaspoon of encouragement and put it to my lips? It would make such a difference. So I think that there's a lot of pastors and they would say, well, that's not my personality. That's not how I'm wired. You know, but talk about that because I don't remember hearing you talk about this a ton other than to say that you've got the gift of encouragement. That's good, Jeff. Um, in the first place, it's one third of our preaching task. 
Now, I just quoted that verse, Acts 2, 17, 18, that says, sons and daughters will prophesy, men and women will prophesy, not just men, but men and women. What is prophecy? Well, 1 Corinthians 14 gives us the definition of prophecy or preaching. It says, prophecy is good for edification, exhortation, and comfort. Now, listen to this. Edification are sermons that build up. They're doctrinal sermons. Exhortation are sermons that fire up. There, let's go take that mountain. Let's go win our town to Christ. Let's go make a difference in racial justice. Let's let's help the poor. Let's win do the Great Commission. Edification, build up sermons. Exhortation, fire up sermons. Comfort are hold up sermons. Okay. Those are encouragements. You're doing a good job. Don't give up. Don't help. Now, to have a healthy church. You have to balance all three of these in your series. If I do a a doctrinal series, like we're going to study what heaven, or we're going to study the life of Christ, then I know I need to do either, that was a build-up series, I need to do a fire-up, or I need to do a hold-up series. And if if, hold-up is a comfort, an encouragement, encouragement series, every pastor has one preference of those three, the kind that he likes to do the most. By nature, I'm a fire-up preacher, okay? Let's go win the Lord, the world of Christ. Let's go do something significant. Let's make a difference. But if all you do is fire-up people, you burn them out. Mm. You can't preach fire-up sermons every week. On the other hand, if you only build, do build-up messages, you get people with big heads, big bottoms, little hands and little feet, and they, and they don't do anything. We, we've amputated the arms and the feet of the body of Christ, and we're just a big head and a big mouth. And most of the time, we're known for what we're against. But but it's build-up message, give big head, but they never do anything, okay? They know who Jebediah is, and they know who Nebuchadnezzar is, but they don't know who their neighbor is, okay? Then there's hold-up messages out there who just said, you're doing a good job, keep on going. If you only do hold-up messages, you get a flabby church. It has no muscle. It it has no effort. I could take, and you could do this yourself, you could name a very famous build-up pastor who all of his messages are build-up this. You could name, uh, 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 you know, a smiling preacher who's hold-up messages, and every message is, keep on going on, keep hang on there, okay? And, and, And so, by nature, I need something to balance all three. Now, encouragement starts from the pulpit. You can't give enough of it. You can't give enough of it. And it all it's all about love. I have a prayer that I memorized. It's, you know how like professional athletes have a game day ritual they use to get ready for their game? I have a game day ritual that I use to get ready for doing six services every weekend, which I did for nearly a dozen years. It about killed me. Two Sunday morning, two Sunday night, two Saturday night. It, by the time I get to the sixth service, I'm going to go, what do you guys want to talk about? You know, everybody, anybody read a good magazine review, seen a good movie? You know, what, you know, what would you like to talk about? And you know, I'm just, you know, after that. And, and so one of the things I would do is, I pray this long prayer, and I won't go into that prayer, but there is a part of it that as I walk out onto the stage every service, every week, I would look out at the crowd and I would say this, God, 
I love these people. And they love me. And I love you. And you love me. And you love these people. And these people love you. There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out all fear. This is not an audience to be feared or to impress. This is a family to be loved. And as I walk up to the pulpit, the very first thing I would say, almost exclusively every time is, have I told you guys lately that I love you? Hmm. I don't think you can tell people enough that you love them. You say, well, I love it. Well, tell them. Your wife likes to hear it. Your kids like to hear it. The church likes to hear it. And we built a love fest at, at Saddleback that actually protected us from a lot of the criticism that was out there going on the outside. They just don't know. They, they just don't know. And so it, it's all about love. And if you study the ministry of Jesus, everywhere Jesus went, he gave a look, a word, and a touch. A look, a word, and a touch. A look, a word, and a touch. He would look people in the eye, which says, you matter to me. When I look people in the eye, I'm giving them the most important thing I've got, my attention. Because I'm every moment of attention I give you, I'm never getting back. I can always get more money, but I can't get, get more time. When I was a when my daughter, oldest one, Amy, was little, I'd be reading the paper. She said, Daddy, yeah, babe, what do you want? Daddy, yeah, what do you want, babe? Daddy, what do you want? She'd pull the paper down, grab my hand, and say, Daddy, look at me. And what she's saying, I want your attention. I I've talked to so many pa uh, men who lost their wives hmm. because they didn't give them attention. And they said, I never understood it. I, I, I gave my kids and I gave my wife everything they wanted. What more did they want? They wanted you. They wanted your attention. They wanted you. That's what they wanted. And, and so Jesus would give a look, and then he would give a word. I love you. I believe in you. God bless you. A, a word of encouragement. And then a touch. I'm not talking about a sexual touch. A pat on the back, a squeeze on the hand, uh, uh, just a, a hug, uh, you know, a brother-to-brother, brother-to-sister kind of a a physical people are starved for this. Um, our skin was made to be touched. Babies that aren't stroked, premature babies that aren't stroked in, when they're pre-neonatal, they get what's called failure to thrive. Their brains don't develop if they're not stroked. We are meant to be touched. And so I always considered that after the service, as I'm standing outside of wherever we're meeting, and I'm greeting people out on a patio or wherever. I, I would get, I was known as a hugger. And I'm going to go, I wonder how long that hug's got to last that person. Hmm. I, I've had people tell me, you know, Pastor Rick, the only physical affection I get every week is at church. How long does that have to last that person? And if you want to create the family spirit, give a look, a word, and a touch. Okay. Now, here's the interesting thing. I would hug a woman anywhere in public. I would never hug a woman in private. Right. <laughs> Big difference. Got it? Yeah. Got it? In other words, every I've got people standing around me. They know this is not a sexual thing. This is just a brother to a sister thing. Like, And I would hug men as much as I hugged women. And so encouragement is often caught through touch. 
Okay. I remember one time reading a note from a woman in our church. And and by the way, you can learn this, Pastor, who's out there. You may say, well, I'm not a high-touch person. I didn't grow up in a high-touch family. You can train yourself. I watched my executive pastor learn that. Glenn Cruen, when I first met him, was very reserved, I would say even repressed in his emotion. And he came out of a strong uh, Dutch family, and then he served 20 years in naval intelligence where he wasn't supposed to talk to his <laughs> wife about any of his secrets, and on and on and on. And he he was pretty not comfortable with himself. But I watched that man learn the power of pastoral touch and pastoral ministry. And a lady wrote a note one time, and I saw it. She said, I was sitting in my chair at the end of the row, waiting for the service to start. Pastor Glenn walked by and just put his hand on my shoulder and said, God bless you. Glad you're here. And walked on by. She said, I knew I hadn't been forgotten because tomorrow, the next day, I was going in for a double mastectomy. But I knew God had not forgotten me. Oh, wow. And um, the power of just a simple touch. It meant nothing to Glenn. It meant everything to that woman in her hour of, of fear and pain. So we cannot encourage enough. And, you know, when there are people out there, you can, and somebody's really screwed up, they've really messed up, you can come down on the side of grace, or you can come down on the side of law. I decide that if I'm going to go overboard one way, I'm going to do it on the grace side. Okay. Because I've been shown so much slack by our Lord. I'm going to show it to other people. Why is it that sometimes those who understand grace the best are the least gracious? Hmm. That doesn't work. Why is that? If if I truly understand grace, it ought to make me more gracious and more encouraging. Makes you wonder who truly understands it. Yeah, it's true. true. Yeah. Rick, thank you so much for this time. Now, you said we could have all the time we needed. That means maybe if I connect with Tom Wilson, he can maybe set something else up in the future. So greedy. Oh, in, in a heartbeat. You know what? This is easy to do. The The pain thing that I'm in right now is preventing me from traveling. Yeah. 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 And, and so I can't. So you're a captive audience. I'm a captive audience and I can do. Last week I did a a um, FTT finishing the task meet with 120 leaders from Europe hosted in, in Rome uh, by the Catholics. And, uh, and, you know, I just sitting here in my pajamas, <laughs> you know, <laughs> trying to get it done. So wait a minute, the, wait power, a minute. the power of the internet. Thank you, Lord. Wait, do you, do you believe in the Pope, Rick? Oh God, don't, don't uh, do this to don't, poor Rick. Don't, don't get me started. <laughs> don't get me started. You know what? It's, uh, let me tell you what I told them. Let me tell you what I told them. There are about 800 million Buddhists in the world. 800 million Buddhists. There are about a billion Hindus in the world, almost all of them in India. There are 1.4 billion Muslims in the world. There are only 14 million Jews, million Jews. There should be 10 times that amount, should be 140 million Jews. But the Holocaust killed five generations. So there's only 14 million Jews in the entire world. But there are 2.6 billion Christians in the world. Now, They're not all my brand or your brand or anybody else's brand. But if you were to say, do you believe in the Trinity? 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Yes. Do you believe Jesus was the Son of God? Yes. Do you believe he died on the cross and shed his blood for our sins? Yes. Do you believe he rose again on Easter? Yes. Do you believe he ascended back to heaven and he's coming back one day? Yes. Do you believe he gave us the Great Commission? Yes. Do you believe he sent his Holy Spirit to start the church? Yes. Then we're on the same team. <laughs> you're, you're, you're not a Muslim. Okay. You're not a Hindu. Okay. So we got a lot in coming. Now, we have to re-evangelize cultural Christians as much as there are cultural Muslims and cultural Hindus and cultural Jews. Okay, who who are in name only, but you're not starting from scratch. It's not like starting with a Hindu. You're starting with somebody who says, I believe in the Trinity. Okay. And so if we're going to win the world to Christ, and we need to come back and do a whole session on FTT. Okay. I really do. would like to do that. We do. I would like yeah, to come we do. Ostensibly, and, that's and, what and, we were going to talk about. Yeah. I know, I know. Is, you know, my blabbermouth. I got into other stuff. You asked you asked the wrong question, Johnny. Okay. No, no, so. he asked a question, Rick. That's all you need. Wrong question, right question. You'll turn it into the question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Exactly. Well, here's the thing. It's gonna take all the church fulfilling all the great commission in all places, with all people, all for the glory of God, first to get the job done. Mm -hmm. Now, think about this. Of those 2.6 billion in-name Christians, 1.4 billion of them are Catholic. Mm -hmm. They're Catholic, okay? 300 million of them are Eastern Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Syrian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, all the Middle Eastern Orthodox groups. 500 million of them are Pentecostals, which is the fastest growing tribe of Christians. They've gone from zero to 500 million in 100 years. And the rest of them are various shades of Protestantism, evangelicalism, and some indigenous Christian groups in, in Africa and other places. We're going to have to figure out everybody getting to the table. So I told these guys the other day, I said, guys, and we can ask, you can ask me this question again on another broadcast. But I said, um, okay, look at this. The four verbs of the Great Commission are go, make disciples, baptize, teach. Okay. We already know off the bat we're not going to agree on the baptism part. Okay. Lots of, I give you 50 different versions of what baptism means, but depending on what tribe you are in Christianity. We may not even agree on what's a disciple, okay? In making disciples, what is what what is your definition of a disciple? And we may not even agree on teaching them to do all things. What's in your catechism may be different than what's in my catechism and teach them to do all things. But one thing every follower of, Christ, of, of Jesus, of Christ, has to do is go. We can agree on that. So can we just agree on that, even when we don't even agree on the details of the rest, that we are called to go? To be a follower of Christ means you have to actually move. We're not a passive faith. We are an active faith. You have to take steps. You have to go. You can't spell God without go, gospel without go, good news without go. Uh, it, it, we are a going faith. And of the five purposes of the church, worship, fellowship, discipleship, ministry, and evangelism, I don't have to tell people to worship. They do it every weekend. 
every church. I don't have to tell them to fellowship. They do it every weekend. I don't even have to tell most of them to disciple. They're doing some kind of Bible study and spiritual growth. And many of them actually actually have a ministry or ministries to their community and that. But the one of the five purposes that gets left off is the only one you can't do in heaven, evangelism. And so over the next 10 years, we're going to focus on that one because we're already doing these other four. But nobody's training people for evangelism. Nobody's training people to share their faith. And the reason why is that we're using a form of evangelism that everybody hates. It's a sales presentation that you memorize. And who wants to do that with their friend? Jesus never had a standard approach. And so we have to go back to how they evangelized in the New Testament. The church at its best was the church at its birth. And and the one thing that Christians and non-Christians agree on, they both hate evangelism. <laughs> and the reason they both hate evangelism, they both hate evangelism is because it's been told sold to us as a sales pitch. Yeah. That you memorize it and you become automaton and you don't even pay attention to the needs and hurts of your of your friend. You just sell your speech. But nobody wants to do that. I certainly want to do that. So we're going to not only uh, uh, emphasize evangelism training, we're going to take them back to how they did it in the New Testament. And that is what we'll talk about on the next episode. And I want to hear that. I, I do. Yeah. And what you, so Johnny, right? So much of what he said, this just this relational, organic, biotic, absolutely evangelism, yeah. love-based. Johnny and I were pastors in the same church for five years and now we've been apart for almost about six years. No kidding. Years. Where, where, was, where was that? Uh, Orange City, Iowa. The other Orange City. Yeah, the Orange City, <laughs> Iowa. No kidding. Yeah, north of Sioux City. Uh, we're in a wow. Christian Missionary Alliance church. CMA. Yeah. Well, you know, my first member of Saddleback Church was a CMA uh, guy and his brother was the head of the Department of Education for the, the entire CMA. Well, and he wow. was my first member of Saddleback. His name was Don Dale, and his brother was named Darrell Dale, who was the head of education for CMA for many years. That's cool. That's funny. That's so cool. Johnny and I spent a lot of time talking about a lot of this stuff. And um, yeah, that's yeah. good. So I've got people at the church waiting on me. I'm going to use Rick Warren as an excuse. So it's uh, <laughs> a good one. Uh, well, thanks for putting I up for with all my uh, computer foibles. So, so I'll, I'll be in touch with Tom and, uh, yes. I hope, I hope that it's not pain that, you know, forces your availability the next time. I hope that you get through this. <laughs> yeah. We'll be quick. praying for and, you. Uh, hey, let me, let me give you, let me give you guys something to pray for. In 1820, there were, uh, six, um, uh, college students who were praying for the fulfillment of the great commission and world missions. They're walking down a country road rainstorm hits, it's thunder and lightning, scares them. They didn't want to stay wet. So they said, let's just get under. They all ducked under a, a large uh, haystack and waited for the rain and the thunder and lightning to end. They While they're in there, they said, let's just pray for world evangelism. Out of that came a very famous revival called the Haystack Revival. Hmm. And, and it started among college students in universities and colleges and sent many, many people to the mission field. The next year, all of the different denominations in uh, America in this awakening period committed that the fourth Thursday of every February would be 
the National Day, Collegiate Day of Prayer, where we pray for college students to come to Christ, and we pray for colleges to have spiritual awakening and renewal on their campuses. This Thursday is the 200th anniversary of that prayer meeting, and they're they're going to do a national simulcast, and, and they've asked me to, to speak at it. So I'm, I'm honored that the college students asked me to do it. That's awesome, Rick. This morning, I listened to the message that started whatever is going on at Asbury Seminary. Asbury, yeah. Also by a CMA guy. Yeah, right. It's just a 26-minute message, and and we went into a staff meeting this morning, and I started telling them about this message, which is, it's a message. But, but as I reflected on it and was telling them about it, man, it was it's pretty moving what God is doing there. And I, you know, I can be in Johnny and I can be skeptical about some of these things at times. But after listening to this guy and thinking about these students, thought, how dare I do anything to take anything away from these college students who are seeking God? They're the ones that are going to change the world. And it's it was so it was so moving. Fifty two years ago, it happened the first time at Asbury, and out of that revival, that uh, Asbury sent out over two thousand witnessing teams to other universities, and it began to catch fire because revival is caught. People go, I want that in my life. I want that in my church, and it began, and that was one of the seeds that brought on the Jesus mm-hmm. movement, the, the Jesus Revolution of the seventies. And Robert Coleman wrote a quick, a little book about it called One Divine Moment. I was in high school at the time. I read that book and it so warmed my heart. I took it back to my high school and a revival broke out there. Mm. Several hundred kids came to know the Lord in a high school. And so it spreads like that. And and may we pray that this would be the first of many. Uh, The only way we're ever going to complete the Great Commission is we have to have revival of some kind. It, it, it can't be. God can do more in one week of revival than we can do in 10 years of programming. Rick, thank you. We'll be praying for you that uh, you get through this, and uh, thanks for your time. Hey, I love you guys. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me on. See ya. Thank you. Thank you. And, and and don't wait like 10 years again, okay? Like you did, you know, I, how long many years after K? Huh? Six. Five. Six, yeah. Five, at least five. Yeah. Six, probably. <laughs> See you later. See you, Rick. Love you guys. Yeah. Okay, my friend, now here's the epilogue. You ready for the epilogue? And so many of you could give an epilogue, I'm sure, just like mine. In fact, there I know that there are some of you listening who were at conferences at Saddleback at the same time that I was. I just know it to be true. In October of 1997, my wife and I and a team from our church in New York State flew out to California and went to the Purpose Driven Church Conference at Saddleback Church. It was revolutionary for us. It was life-giving. It was exhilarating. And it was just a, a pure joy to be at that conference that week with the team from our church. And honestly, it really was. It was life-changing for both me and for my wife. We we would go out, uh, I would go out again in 1998, her and I together went out again in 2002. Uh, I went two more times, I think once in 05 and once in 06. I don't think I've been out there since 2006. I might have been and maybe I've just forgotten. But those were always great times to be with other ministry leaders. And, and I always called it kind of the Disneyland 
of ministry locations for church leaders. We started 200 churches so that we could talk to pastors of small churches without needing an adapter or a translator from a lot of the stuff you'll get at these mega church conferences. They say that, you know, small church pastors, you know, you just take it and and you have to implement it differently. It's just really tough. It's tough. So I've gone to it more as a ministry resort and a place of encouragement and inspiration and idea generation and a whole lot less than, oh, we're going to come back and we're going to have anything like that at our church. No, it's apples and oranges. It's a very different place. But Rick Warren, uh, for the past now 26 years, I've been watching him in ministry, watching how he's handled himself, his life, situations, some tragedies in his life and in his family, and some great victories and successes and opportunities. And it's just been fun watching him and Kay as as fellow pastor and wife uh, to live their lives and to serve and to do what they've done. And so uh, all respect goes to them. They're not perfect. They're not Jesus. It's not like they haven't messed up and made mistakes because we all have. But they're a pastor and wife just like we're pastors with our wives or we're pastors with our husbands. Same thing. They're just people. And I think you probably realized on this episode today uh, just how much of a just a, I mean, he even said, sue <laughs> I had to laugh. I had to laugh. It just was too rich. So, hey, Pastor, I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. And we will catch up with you next week on the 200 Churches Podcast. My name is Angela, and I'm so glad you've stuck with us to the very end. We'd love to have you leave a rating or review wherever you listen to this podcast. Until next week, may God bless you as you lead and love His church.